Good morning. Today we begin a brand new series called Kingdom Parables. Over the next six weeks, we're going to look at six unique parables to the Gospel of Luke. Jesus is the master storyteller, and he uses his parables, he uses these stories to teach his listeners both then and today how to love, how to pray, how to see the world through the lens of the kingdom. And so if you have your Bibles, open them up to Luke chapter 12. Luke chapter 12, as you're turning there, I want to ask if you've ever heard of the word affluenza. You familiar with it? Affluenza is a nifty little word that a clever sociologist created by mixing two words together. The word affluence means having a great deal of money, and influenza, which is a highly contagious and potentially fatal disease. When you mix these two together, you get affluenza which is useful for describing the problems generated by a rich consumer culture that has an endless hunger for more stuff. So affluenza is the disease of greed. It's a materialistic mindset that says getting more stuff, getting more money, more possessions is the ultimate aim of life. Affluenza is the spirit of our age. It's infected every one of us. Today, we're going to talk about one of the many places in Scripture where God addresses the problem of affluenza. It's interesting to note that 16 of Jesus' 38 parables deal with money, possessions, and their relationship to us. We're going to study one of these 16 parables. Now, Jesus never condemned wealth in and of itself, but he knows how easily our hearts can make money our God. Jesus knows and he wants us to understand that one of the greatest, if not the greatest hindrances to spiritual life and spiritual growth is material wealth and the temptations that come with it. And so with your Bibles turned to Luke chapter 12, would you please stand for the reading of God's word? We'll begin reading in verse 13. Someone in the crowd said to him, teacher, Tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Jesus replied, Man, who appointed me a judge or an arbiter between you? Then he said to them, Watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. And he told them this parable. The ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. He thought to himself, What shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, This is what I'll do. I will tear down my bards and build bigger ones, and there I will store my surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves, but is not rich toward God. May God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. In Luke chapter 12, Jesus is teaching a crowd of thousands. And while teaching, there's a man who calls out to Jesus and he says in verse 13, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. The exchange that Jesus has with this man is a pretty interesting one. It shows us that although Jesus is perfectly righteous, he's not an idealist. He doesn't say, oh, your your brother's not sharing the inheritance with you. I'm so sorry. Johnny, you share the inheritance. 
No, verse 14, he says, man, who appointed me a judge or an arbiter between you? What are you coming to me with this for? It's not that Jesus doesn't love the man, he does. He simply refuses to become a referee in this squabble over money. Jesus sees the real problem. He sees the real danger for this man's soul, the real danger for our soul. This man is coming to Jesus with a money problem, and his definition of a money problem is that he doesn't have enough money, that he's not getting the money that he thinks he should be getting, which is just like you and me. Whenever we think of having a money problem, we think of being in need of money. And what Jesus says to us is, you do have a money problem, but here's the real money problem. Money has too much of your heart. God wants us to see that when it comes to money problems, our greatest concerns should be avoiding the pitfalls of greed. Jesus seizes this opportunity to help us understand the deceptive work of greed, and he does so by offering three important lessons. Number one, greed lies to us. It tells us that what matters most in life is how much we have. That's the essential lie of greed. Greed says that the quality of a person's life is measured by the size of their bank account and the quality and the quantity of their possessions. In verse 15, Jesus warns us not to fall prey to that mindset. He says, watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. Don't believe the lie of greed, because if you do, you'll pass by what truly matters in life. Number two, greed blinds us. It blinds us to what's truly important in life. It blinds us to, to spiritual realities. Jesus illustrates this by telling us a story of a rich man who believed the lie of greed. Now, it's important to note that Jesus doesn't say that having money or being skilled at making money is wrong. There are many godly men and women in the Bible, as well as throughout church history, that have been wealthy, that have been entrepreneurs, that have been skilled at making money. The issue here is how we view money and use money. The rich man's problem isn't that he's rich. His problem is that he is selfish. He hoards what he has. He, he uses it for his own pleasure, and he puts his trust in his wealth. Do you notice how everything that the man thinks and does revolves around himself? He has the I, 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 my, my, my syndrome. Look again at verse 17. The ritual says, what shall I do? For I have no place to store my crops. He then says, this is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones. Then I will store all my surplus grain there. He's totally blind to the needs of others. There, there's no mention of the poor. There's no mention of God, no mention of, of God's priorities, or even his own family. It's I, 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 my, my, my. And, and that's what the lie of greed does. It, it blinds us to the needs of others. We, we've all heard it hundreds of times, that, that nobody on their deathbed wishes they had spent more time at work. Whenever we hear that, we nod our heads, we say, yeah, that, that's true. But how many of us work in such a way that contradicts that truth because we want just a little bit more? 
I have never met an adult who looked back on his or her childhood and wished that their parents had spent more time at the office so they could have more toys or more money. But I've talked to a lot of adults who wish that their parents were, were home more when they were a child. We can see the lie of greed a lot more easily when it's functioning in someone else, can't we? Maybe you can see it clearly in your parents, in your parents or, or in, in a relative or, or in friends. But do we see it in ourselves? Do we see the subtle ways that, that it can shape our life? How many of the decisions and the actions that your family take are based on the lie of greed? That, that getting more stuff is gonna make you happier, healthier, and, and be better. So all of us, we need to stop and we need to ask the question, where is greed blinding me? Am I truly uh, passing up on what's important for the sake of fleeting possessions? Number three, greed ultimately destroys us. It, it might be tempting to think that the worst consequence of greed is a few too many days at the office. That doesn't sound that bad. For, for some, greed might, might seem like the one sin with variable consequences. You think of those other sins, you know, that they get you in trouble, but, but if you slip up when it comes to greed, you just wind up with cool stuff, right? But it's worse than that. Greed does not just end up with regret in this life, it ends up in eternal loss at the end of life. Greed operates under the assumption that all that matters in this world is the rewards that money can give us. But in the story that, that Jesus tells, he shows us that this isn't true. He gives us a glimpse into what happens after death, allowing us to see beyond the grave. Now, the rich man in this parable, he had a perfect plan, didn't he? He was gonna end his life being rich, fat, and happy. And then God demanded his soul. In an instant, all that he had accumulated was worthless. Worse than that, God called him a fool. In the Bible, the word fool is given to those who live their lives without reference to God. Those who fail to fear God and his judgment. What is God going to speak over your life when you die. The rich, the rich fool lived for money and he ignored God. He overlooked the needs of others and he lived for himself. Yeah, he prepared for the ultimate retirement, but he neglected to prepare for eternity. What a tragedy. And it's only at death do his eyes open to the lies and the blindness brought about by greed. But it's too late for regret. It's too late for remorse. The rich fool had gained the world, yet he had lost his soul. And so Jesus closes with these sobering words in verse 21. This is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves, but is not rich toward God. We understand the eternal consequences to greed. And when we do, it's no wonder that Jesus warned us so strongly to be on guard against greed. Tell me, what, it's worth, what is it worth if you die and the world looks at your life and says, what a success. Look at his barns, look at his grain, look at the life that he's gathered for himself. If the world says that, but God looks at your life and says, you fool, 
you will have suffered and lost eternally. So the question is, how do we guard against greed? There are at least four ways that we should be vigilant against greed. Number one, we need to recognize our unique vulnerability. We live in the red zone of the affluenza pandemic. In a book titled Affluenza, the authors note that in 1986, there were more high schools than shopping centers in our country. In 2016, 30 years later, there were two and a half times more shopping centers than schools. We spend more on clothes, jewelry, and watches than we do on higher education. And when you think about how much it costs for higher education these days, that's a lot of clothes, that's a lot of jewelry, that's a lot of watches. We just can't get enough. Americans have a billion credit cards carrying over a trillion dollars in debt, not including mortgages and real estate. We want more because we need all these things to, to fill our big houses with. We know living in Indiana that we face the reality of tornadoes, right? You, you plan for them. You, you know they're going to happen. You got to be ready. If you live in Florida, it's the same thing for hurricanes. If you live in California, it's the same thing for earthquakes. You prepare. To ignore is, is utter folly. In the same way, as Christians living in America in the 21st century, we have to face the great spiritual danger of materialism and greed. It's the air we breathe. It's obvious from Jesus' words in his parable and in other teachings in the New Testament that greed is a serious spiritual problem for every Christian in every generation, but we need to recognize that it is uniquely our temptation. If Jesus spoke this solemn warning to Jewish men and women living in the first century, most of whom lived day to day, how much more strongly would he speak it to Americans living in the most prosperous nation in the history of the world? Like if, if we could look at this planet from heaven's vantage point, going from continent to continent and country to country to identify the greatest spiritual peril Christians and each of those areas are facing, is there any question at all that heaven would contend that the greatest challenge we face as Christians in America is the danger of loving the things of this world more than God himself? Is there any question that, that our greatest peril is having the possessions and, and the things of this world cling to us in a way that we take our eyes off of the heavenly city that we're called to? we need to acknowledge our unique vulnerability to affluenza. Number two, we need to remember that there are all kinds of greed. Jesus says in verse 15, watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. If Jesus had just wanted to say, be on the lookout for greed, he could have done that. But he goes out of his way to say all kinds of greed. He wants us to understand that greed takes many forms. We have to remember this because I think our tendency is to create this caricature of greed. We, we draw this extreme picture of greed in our mind and we say, well, you know, that doesn't look like me at all. But greed isn't just some old miser counting coins in the basement. We can all say that we've never done that. Gr greed takes many forms. You don't even have to be rich to be greedy. Sometimes people think, I'm not greedy. 
I don't have enough money to be that way. You can be broke and greedy. It's not as much fun, but it can happen. You see, our problem is that we often focus on the greed that we see in others. And we love to identify that place in our lives where we're frugal, and we hold on to that thing as a shiny example of what we're truly like. All the while, we ignore any evidence of greed in our life. We do it. For example, I'll tell you that, that I've never really cared a whole lot about the car that I drive. I've got, I've got a fine car. The last car that I had, I had for 13 or 14 years, put 300,000 miles on it, drove it into the ground. Like Cars have just never been a, a big thing to me. I want AC in the summer, I want heat in the winter, I want it to get me from point A to point B. Other than that, I'm good. I'm not materialistic when it comes to cars, and I like to congratulate myself about that. I like to pat myself on the back and say, you know, Joel, you're not materialistic, you don't care about cars. That's true. But I do own an iPhone, an iPad, AirPods, and an Apple Watch. There are are a lot of people that think that's, that's unnecessary and ridiculous. But I don't drive around thinking, man, I own every Apple product. I'm a greedy person. No, I I drive around thinking, I could drive a nicer car, but I don't. All the while, I'm thinking, I wonder when that next Apple product's gonna come out. So so I got an Apple problem that that I gotta deal with. What's your issue? For for some people, uh, greed might take the form of, of wanting more stuff. You always think about the next thing that that you want to buy, that next thing that you want to get. For another person, it might look different. You don't buy a ton of stuff, but when you do buy something, you have to have the very best. You won't settle for anything less. For another person, greed is not expressed in some lavish lifestyle, but it's in, in a craving to have a huge amount of savings. That savings that kind of gives you a sense of security. Someone wouldn't look at your life and say, wow, they must be greedy because they have all these possessions. But if they could look into your heart and they could look into your soul, they would see that you have put your faith in money and that you've put that set aside for your future and that you're trusting in money instead of God. For another person, greed might be expressed in a lack of joy in sharing with others. You don't buy things for yourself, but you don't buy anything for anybody else either. See, greed takes many forms. And that's why Jesus said, watch out for the many different ways that greed will deceive you. Number three, we need to get our financial house in order. It's not greed to carefully think about, manage, and budget your money. If you're not planning how you're going to save, what you're going to spend your money on, how you're going to give, then you are more, not less susceptible to the impulses of greed. An important part of avoiding slavery to money is making sure that you are managing your money and not that your money is managing you. And so to make sure that that we're not living for money and driven by greed, we have to make sure that, that our financial house is in order. We need to have a plan that aligns with God's priorities. We need to stick to it. How do we do that? Let me give you a few ideas. It all begins by putting God first. We put God first, we we tithe to the Lord. The very first portion of our income is called the tithe, which simply means 10%. This was validated by Jesus in Luke 11, 42. The most important principle in the Bible regarding the handling of money is bringing the tithe to the Lord. So why is it that? 
Because how we handle the top 10% is the primary indicator of whether or not our hearts are wholly devoted to the Lord. I'll tell you, the, the reason I am convinced that so many believers struggle in financial bondage is because they refuse to follow this first step in a godly financial plan. So as, as we give God our best, as we give to God first, what's that look like? We'll give faithfully. We give of our first fruits, not our leftovers. We give regularly. So as we get paid, as, as we receive an income, where we're regularly giving that, the first 10%. So give faithfully, give regularly, give systematically. That means you got a plan in place. And one of the, the blessings of living in the 21st century is that with, with online giving, either going through the church website or going through the church center app, you, you, can, you can regularly have that uh, automated. And then give joyfully. Giving is an act of worship. We come together and we sing praises to God. We worship him. We study and we sit in the teaching of God's word as an act of worship and we give as an act of worship. We also need to pay taxes according to the law. Matthew twenty-two twenty-one. Jesus says, so give to Caesar what is Caesar's and give back to God what is God. Now, by the way, a true tithe is based off our entire earnings not on what's left after withholding taxes is taken out. Romans 13, verses six and seven, says this is also why you pay taxes. For the authorities are God's servants who give their full time to governing. Give to everyone what you owe them. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honor, then honor. I recall the story of a man who wrote an anonymous letter to the IRS. He wrote, Here's a check for $150. And if my conscience still bothers me, I'll send the rest. Well, next, avoid debt. Debt has become the new normal for purchasing things that we want that we can't afford. The Bible tells us in Romans 12, 2, do not be conformed to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. When it comes to borrowing, Christians seem to do it like the rest of the world. But we're called to live differently. And that includes the way that we view money. Now, while the Bible does not forbid debt, it does discourage it. More than 26 references to debt in Scripture are negative. Proverbs 22.7 describes debt this way. The rich rule over the poor, and the borrower is slave to the lender. Debt is living today on tomorrow's presumed income. And that's not healthy because it keeps us from experiencing financial freedom. When we are consumed with debt, giving becomes a challenge. So if you find yourself in debt, make it a point to not take on any new debt, and then have a plan to get out of debt as quickly as you can. Next, save. Save, one of the most simple principles, but I still think one of the best, is called the 10-10-80 plan. You give your first 10% to the Lord, you save 10%, you learn to live on the, on the remaining 80%. Proverbs 30, 25 says, ants are creatures of little strength, yet they store up food in the summer. So what is it that the ant does that we're called to emulate? Well, it stores up food for future consumption, right? What the ant does instinctively, we must do voluntarily. We're not forced to do it. We have to do it by choice. And to do that, 
we have to act against the old instincts of our sin nature. So if all that we have at retirement is social security for income, that's nowhere close to being enough. We've got to have a plan to save. That also includes an emergency fund that's set up to cover our unpredictable as well as the predictable future needs. Most financial advisors will tell you that an emergency fund should be somewhere between three to six months of your income. And I know that's a challenge, that's a tall task, but, but it's something that, that we ought to be working towards. And then that leads us to a place where we can give above and beyond, where we give above and beyond. In 2 Corinthians 8.14, it says, at the present time, your plenty will supply what they need, so that in turn, their plenty will supply what you need. The creation of a surplus ought to be a major goal for believers, Over the years, I've noticed a lot of Christians who would love to feed the hungry. They'd love to support a missionary. They'd love to give to the poor. They'd love to to increase what they give to the local church, but unfortunately they can't because they've spent everything on themselves. A principle of the New Testament is faithful money management results in more to manage. Matthew 25, 23, his master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. So we need to get our financial house in order. Number four, we need to push back against materialism. In today's world, we face a constant onslaught of advertisements, enticing us to believe the lie of greed. Our children are being targeted at younger and younger ages. From 1980 to 2014, the amount spent on children's advertising in America went from went from $100 million a year to $15 billion a year. We live in a culture that is sustained by greed. This culture has a vested interest in making sure that you and your family continue to be ruled by wanting more. So in light of this, we we can't be passive. We, We can't just stand still and try to resist the pull. We need to push back. We need to examine our lives and our homes, and and we need to find ways to push back against the lie of materialism that's all around us. So where can we make do with less? Where are we senselessly going along with the consumer, more is better mindset of our culture? Could we be more rich towards God and, and generous towards others if we were willing to be more restrained in our spending habits? Guarding against greed involves a tension between enjoying what God has given us, and Scripture tells us that he's given us all things to enjoy, but at the same time watching for the presence of affluenza. And that takes work. We need to get used to that work. We need to get used to that that ongoing tension. We're not safe from the greed of this world until we reach our eternal home. Until then, we we can't let our guard down. So parents, are you teaching your children to have discernment about the greed in their own lives? Are you helping them to understand how the culture wants to manipulate them? I encourage you to sit down and talk about these as a family. Do you operate with the mindset that you have to spend money in order to have a good time? Do you sometimes think that the only way to have a good time is to go somewhere and spend money to have somebody else entertain you? How can we push back against that mindset? 
Or are your discussions filled with, 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 with conversations about what you want to purchase? Instead, focus on how you can be rich toward God. When, when you're driven by greed, you enjoy the things you have less. When you turn your eyes to God's generosity and you begin to look for ways to express that same generosity, you suddenly have more of God's goodness. You realize the, the, all the blessings that you have. You're more aware of those things. Listen, God, God's not trying to spoil our party. Do you think God is looking at you saying they've got too much stuff? I want to take it away from them. I, I don't want them to be happy. No. God wants our eternal joy. That's why he calls us to push back against materialism. In C.S. Lewis's book, Voyage of the Dawn Treader, part of the, the Chronicles of Narnia series, Lewis tells the story of a very selfish and obnoxious boy named Eustace Clarence Scrub. He's a boy who's ruled by greed. While in Narnia, Eustace stumbles along, he stumbles upon a dragon's lair, and it's filled with treasure. Eustace stuffs his pockets with jewels and diamonds, and then he falls asleep. When he wakes up, he's horrified to find that, that his greedy, dragonish desires have magically turned him into a dragon. Later in the story, we learn that, that Eustace can only turn back into a boy with the help of Aslan, the great lion who represents Jesus Christ. Aslan tells Eustace that, that he must remove his dragon skin. And so Eustace begins to, to tear layer of layer of the dragon skin from his body, but he can't change himself. He's still a dragon. He can't rid himself of his greed. Finally, Aslan says, you can't do it by yourself. I will have to undress you. And it's only when Eustace submits himself to the pain of having Aslan cut his skin with huge, sharp claws that Eustace is finally freed. We are a lot like Aslan. We can only escape greed in every other sin by being rescued by Jesus Christ. He gave up his life on the cross as a substitute for our sin. He took the punishment for all our sin, including the sin of greed and our idolatrous desires for possessions upon himself. He died and he rose again so that all of us who believe in him, all who would believe that he is the greatest treasure that can be desired, would be freed to really live. Every single one of us need the Lord to slice through the layers of greed that we've taken on. We can't change by ourselves. We need to cry out to God to rescue us, to cut through the lies, to help us to see that our resources are from him, that they belong to him, that their greatest good is not in hoarding them for ourselves, but in giving them away to bless others and to fulfill his work to be rich toward God so that one day we will not hear the sentence spoken over our lives, you fool, you lived for what didn't matter. Instead, that we might be welcomed into eternal, lasting riches and treasure, and that we would be welcomed into the very presence of God himself. Let's pray together. Father, I pray that through the work of the Holy Spirit in your life, that those of us who follow you would have lives not marked by greed, but by generosity. Would we be freed from the desire to accumulate more and more? 
but would we be marked by lives who give away for the sake of the kingdom? God, would our lives reflect the life of Jesus? Would, would they reflect the heart of the Father? For God so loved the world that he gave. May we be the same. God, thank you that Jesus died to free us from greed. He freed us from every sin. God, if there's anybody who needs to be freed from, from, from the ultimate bondage, from, from sin that leads to death, God, I pray that today they would make themselves available to a Savior. A Savior who freely died for them. And he didn't just die, but three days later he rose again so that we can have the hope of eternal life. God, if there's anybody who's, who's struggling in bondage to greed or any other kind of sin, God, would they lay that all at your feet today? Would we leave here changed? We need your help. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.